many times have you thought, I would love to do this or that? Maybe write a book, start a charity, create a kid's puppet show, build a sustainable clubhouse, go on the trip of a lifetime, create a production company, whatever that thing is for you, I hope this podcast inspires you to believe you can. I'm Karen Vaughan and this is the Get Off The Bench Podcast. Howdy and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench Podcast. Now, a few weeks ago, I promised that I was uh, getting Amy Loughran on. Now, Amy is the good nurse and there's the book written about her or about the Charlie Cullen story and Amy was the good nurse and then it's become a Netflix movie and there's also a documentary called uh, Catching a Killer Nurse or I may have got that wrong, very close to that. And it, wow, what a story. Charlie Cullen, the nurse we're talking about here, the bad nurse, um, killed uh, more than 400 people in hospital and Amy was his friend. And we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about the healing journey after that because, as you can imagine, that was an uh, an amazingly traumatic time to be trusting somebody and then finding out that they were literally killing people over and over and over. So Amy has um, you know, you've gone through that dark space and come out the other side with the most incredible healing journey, and now she is helping others to heal. And what a story. I know you're going to love it. I'm just going to shut up because I want you to hear Amy's story and she is just the most warm, beautiful, caring, loving person you'll ever listen to. So here we go. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) That's my pleasure. I have been looking forward to this for so long. Well, actually, I I was with our friend Liesl and she said, have you heard of Amy Loughran? I said, no. She said, well, you need to go and watch The Good Nurse. And so we watched that movie, which we'll talk about into this. And I was like, oh, my holy God, I've got to reach out to Amy and get mm. her on. That that's movie scared the bejesus out of me. And uh, oh, I, scary. <laughs> I know. And I, I thought about when I was, um, I don't want to keep talking over you, but when I was in hospital having my thyroid out and uh you know, they have this, uh, it's called a thyroid kit, you know, because you can bleed out and it's sitting up on the shelf where I can see it. In the middle of the night, I really needed to go to the toilet and I was buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and nobody came. And then my brain went to this really dark place like, holy shit, if I was bleeding out, they wouldn't come and I'd be dead. <laughs> so I, I kept- know. I'm watching the movie thinking far out. You just, it, it, you, you can be so close. You're teetering on death, you know, without actually knowing. But anyway, so so thank you for coming yeah, up. And it's, yeah, it's such a vulnerable place to be to think about being in the hospital and needing to trust the nurses, needing yeah. to trust that people are going to want to take care of you. Yeah. And it's the last thing you want to be thinking about is, for one, they're ignoring me and something terrible could happen. Yep. Or for two, mm, there's something more sinister going on with your nurse. Yeah, 
Well, I, I, most of us don't think that. We we go in there in a state of fear. Like, I don't care what anyone says. You go to hospital in fear, do you? Because, yes. and I've never been to hospital until I was 55, 54, never in my life. Wow, lucky you. I know, I know. And then suddenly I've got to have my throat slit open and, you know, and it's like. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I'm a nurse. We we laugh at the worst things. I'm so sorry. <laughs> No, you can laugh. I, I laugh at it. You can laugh at me. That's fine. But it was kind of like, okay, I just would have liked to have gone in for stitches or something at some other stage, you know. <laughs> anyway. But no, no, you have to have your throat slit. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, the whole thing ripped out. So, you know, like if I'm going to vomit, that's probably the worst operation to start chucking up with. But anyway. Yeah. But the it's the um the the woman there was some woman up there. I went to a private hospital and paid extra just so that I would have good care. <laughs> I don't know why I bothered. There was a woman up the hallway and she was uh, just screaming, calling everybody f and this and f and that, and scream. Then the nurse was yelling back at her, and I was just like, "Well, I'm just gonna lie here and die." <laughs> We're laughing now, but I wasn't laughing when I was there. Yeah, funny, not funny. And being in healthcare here in the States, it's completely different. I can't imagine paying more to go to a different hospital. But yeah. for us, you know, you have to take out a mortgage to be able to go to our hospitals. Yeah, I know. I know. I often, you know, even in the, the, like I've known about this for a long time because I've been to Hawaii many, many times and I'm familiar with America and the medical system. My, my sister was in there with a um, brain bleed in Hawaii and, oh, you know, no. the, the, yeah, and insurance wouldn't cover it. And, um, oh, no. It was, uh, yeah. And she, she ended up dying. Like we, we did get her back. Oh, to I'm Australia. so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Sometimes I say it's okay, but thank you. It's, um, it, yeah, it was a really tough thing and we couldn't pay and, um, yeah, it was just really, really Breaks awful. My heart. Uh, we had this one window to get, uh, it's a quite a, it's quite an awful story, but they, we, she had a brain hemorrhage on the way over on the plane and we didn't know. She was on warfarin. I, di I didn't know. Um, she was telling me when we we're there that she was sick and headachey, which I could see. And I said, what do I need to do? I want to take you to hospital. She said, no, I'm not going to hospital. I just need headache tablets. And I said, well, which one? She said, any. So I went to many chemists, you know, we tried one, didn't work. I went and got another brand, didn't work. What what we realised is that the, 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 the painkillers were actually not supporting the warfarin at all and she was bleeding and her brain was bleeding and it was a, a, a it wasn't until it was a week and actually it was a week and I said to her if you're not better by this afternoon I don't care what you say I'm taking you to hospital and I don't care I'm going to take you against your will and and I did and they did a CT scan and it was just a, a just horrible so they gave her a, a life-saving surgery they thought and when they opened her up her brain was full of tumors and it wasn't going to happen and they prepared us for her dying there but there was just so happened that the the surgeon had a good friend in radiology and um he agreed uh, I have no idea how ethical this is or whatever but he said look it's not a good option but what we can do is um just fry her brain enough that you might be able to get her back to Australia but it will give her brain damage and the um so the options were she was going to die in Hawaii or 
we did that extra risk, you know, and we we did get all the way back to Australia and I sat in I sat in business class with her because the embassy, you know, did that. And, and on the way over she said to me, can you see that angel? Oh, he's so nice. He's so no big. Way. Yeah, he's so big. He's blue. Look at him, Karen. Look at him. And I said, yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, we're going to lose her midway and my mum and dad were in the back in in economy and next thing she got diarrhea and next thing there's a is there any doctors on board so mum and dad are in the back panicking you know what's happened and we made it we got to it to sydney and i said that's it straight off you're on in ambulance straight to hospital no i'm going back to warrigal which is the uh rural town we live in uh, lived in and she said no. So, so we got her back to Melbourne. She, I said off. She said no. I'm going back to Oregon. <laughs> so she, she, she made it. She, she lived for another, another few months. But anyway, this isn't about my story. This is about your story. But um, we've all got a story. Yeah. We've all got a story. We have all got a story. I yeah. always talk about need to be kind to people. You know, because you don't, you don't yes. know what the hell's no, going. No, you don't. You no. don't. So back to your story, Amy, because um, I've been talking and I want you to talk. Um, in 2003, let's go back there, you were a, a trauma nurse in the in the ER, emergency, whatever you call it there. Um, a lazy Buddhist, we'll say, um, wanting to do more Buddhist work, but absolutely no time because you were a mum and working all these long hours. And you also had a heart issue that was kind of stopping you well, forcing you to go to work to pay your premium um, health insurance, but knowing that will kill you at any moment. So what a what a predicament. But in that year, you're also the centre of a murder investigation. And now uh, I want to talk about this further into the interview because I want people to understand that life can be in a shitty place, but you can turn it around and make uh, a beautiful life for yourself. Now you're a Reiki master, hypnotherapist, NLP practitioner, and a whole lot of other things, which we'll get into. And as I mentioned at the start, I watched the movie, Netflix movie, The Good Nurse, and scared the shit out of me. And all that was based around 2003. So now, Amy, I will shut the hell up and you <laughs> tell us about 2003. <laughs> So 2003, I was pretty scared. I was working full time, even though I was only working weekends, I was still working 12, 16 hour shifts. And when I wasn't working, I was home with my kids and barely slept. And during that time, I was extremely ill. Mm -hmm. And while I was at work, uh, even one time when I was at work, I passed out. And my closest friend at the time essentially saved my life. And that close friend ended up um, ended up being fired. Once he was fired, I was really, really upset because he was the person that I relied on. He was the person that helped me at work. He was the only person that knew about my heart condition. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do without him. And then detectives showed up at work. In the movie, it's different. Yeah. In the movie, I was still working with him 
um, when I found out who he was and what he was doing. But in the real world, uh, I did not know. I did not suspect. And after he was fired and the detective showed up, I found out that he had been killing patients. Mm. And as much as that was the biggest shocker for me, it wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it was that I saw the evidence and the detectives showed me that evidence so that I could help them with the investigation. And that evidence made it very clear that the hospital knew. Mm. They made it very clear that I was working in a situation where the hospital was making it more important to make money than it was mm. to help their patients remain safe. So mm. I assisted with the investigation and the worst part of it was hiding it from the hospital because the hospital was shredding evidence and the hospital was working against us at all costs so that they were not held liable. Wow. Charlie Cullen, Charles Cullen, um, who murdered between 400 and possibly even a thousand patients. Wow. Um, he had been working at nine different hospitals and five of those hospitals knew that he was at least probably harming patients, but mostly did know that he was murdering patients and sent him to the next hospital with a neutral reference. Wow. And my hospital was the last one because eventually after working undercover with the detectives, I was able to wear wire and I was able to get a confession out of him. Mm. And he is now serving I'm making up the number. I believe it's 17 life sentences. Mm -hmm. He admitted to murdering approximately 40 people. The only reason that it's that low is because those are the people that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. He remembers their name. He remembers their circumstance. He remembers how he murdered them. And the rest of them, he could not be certain that they did not die. They were very sick patients. They were in the ICU. They were critically ill. They could have had multi-organ failure, which caused their death. He cannot be certain that their death was caused by what he did. Although he murdered, I believe it was 20 patients in uh, the year that the year and a half that I was working with him uh, that we know of. And he attempted, we know that he attempted within that period of time, attempted at least 300 murders during oh. that time. Wow. So okay. he was a cold-blooded murderer. He was not a mercy killer. He was not looking at these patients like they needed to cross over. And he couldn't stand their suffering, even though during his confession, he did say that. Mm -hmm. We know the types of medications that he used none of them were to put people to sleep. All of them were meant to harm. And there were times also, there were witnesses that survived his attempted murder who said that they they told them that he was going to kill them. Oh. So 
he was not a mercy killer, even though I wanted to believe that he was. And in the movie, I think that they tried to get that right. I think they tried to make it very clear Mm -hmm. um, that he was not trying to help people. He, Mm. He murdered people that were on the mend. In fact, one of his first victims was only 18 years old, and she was ready for discharge. So he never meant to do anything except something sinister with those patients. Mm. He had a, he had a, um, like he lost his mum, and this, and like you said, the movie is different. And I, I also watched the um, documentary Catching a Killer Nurse as well, and and I noticed, I noticed some differences. I've just picked up the book. I, I incorrectly ordered it from America and it cost me nearly a hundred bucks. So it's, I'm oh sure my it's gosh. A, I'm sure it's going to be a good read. I started you reading should have, it. You should have told me. I would have sent you no, mine. It's all right. I wanted to read it before I talked to you and I I can't. I've got, I've, I've, it's every time I read a chapter, I'm like, oh, holy shit, you know, and particularly the it Burns. It is holy shit. The Burns chapter. I, I put it I down. Know. And I was white and my partner says, what's wrong? And I said, fuck, do you know what they do to Burns victims? And she said, no, do I want to? And I said, no, for Christ's sake, stay away from fire. For God's sake, stay away from fire. And I, so if everyone's curious about that, go get the book, read it. You'll, you'll absolutely nearly throw up, but it's, I'm sure it's a great read and I can't wait to read through it, but I'm going to chip at it uh, with my soft little heart. (laughs) Yeah, Charles Graber spent so much time getting it right. And that book, it reads like a novel, even though it's a beautiful, beautiful book written by by someone who really cared to get it right. And he did. He definitely got it right. So you think the book is the most accurate account of what yes. happened? Yep. Okay. So that is the most accurate account of Charles Cullen that you will ever lay your hands on. He spent, I think, in at least in prison, when he went to talk to him in prison to do his research, I think he, no, I'm certain he saw Charles Cullen in prison more than I did. I I was able to visit him in prison. Um So he spent a lot of time talking to Charlie and a lot of time figuring out what his mental health status was Mm. and much more so than I did much more. So Uh, Charlie was very, um, how do I say? I, I think that he was very good at playing a role. He was Mm -hmm. extremely performative and wanting to be the hero and specifically wanting to be my hero. And that was all that I knew of him. But the murderer Mm -hmm. was not the person I knew. I met the murderer, but it was not the friend I knew. It was not my friend, Charlie. And Mm -hmm. he was a completely different person. I was going to say um, there, and I just want to come back to that. But um, his mother died, and so like a lot of the portrayals in the in the movies, that is that that sort of hit him hard, and it's so it it could be that that has turned him like really affected his mental health so much so that he's bitter enough to kill people. But it also could be that he was born with it. Like, do you have a thought of? which of those it could be, or if not, if neither? You know, I think it does come down to nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. And I know that for, 
for many reasons, the way that he processed that type of trauma was not the way that I processed trauma. Mm. My trauma was different, but I had very serious trauma in my life as a child. And that led me to want to protect people mm. because I was not protected. Mm. And him having that lack of protection turned him to want to murder the people that were harming him. Mm. So I I don't know. I don't know why his brain went there and mine didn't. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was because I had a different type of support system in my life and I had really good friends. He did not. He was very mm. socially awkward. Um, possibly that's why we don't know. Mm. So was he born that way? Perhaps. I don't know if we'll ever know. It's hard, isn't it? Because I think that no matter what, like that we can find the reason and you and I could do, could do this for an hour, go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's no excuse. Do you, you know, it's it's kind of like we're all yes. Yes, intrigued of course, of with the reason. You know, it's like well, I think what it comes I, I think what it comes down to is really us as humans, I think we want to know because I think that there's always that question inside of us that mm. we know each one of us has had hardships mm. and we want to believe that our hardships led us to something beautiful mm. because that gives us a wonderful story, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Whereas when we look at people, and I think that's why it's so fascinating looking at people like Charlie Cullen is because he went in a direction that we could not think of. And we're mm. fascinated by that. We're yeah. fascinated that they decided to do things with their hurt, the hurt within them to hurt other people. Mm. And I think we question that. I think we question, hey, why didn't I do that? Am I better than this person? Does it mean that I am more capable than this person? Does it mean that I'm more spiritually adept? I, I, mm. it, I think that it, we're always asking those questions when in reality, we don't know. We don't know if the way that they processed it was something that is a natural thing that we are trying to grow out of as a human race. Mm. Or if, you know, was he just the animal part of him just took over. And so anyway, mm. again, we could talk about this mm. for days and not yeah. come up with an answer. No, I know. And it is fascinating. I'm with you that human behavior, it, two people can experience something similar and yet take completely different paths. And it fascinates yeah. the hell out of me. But at the end yeah. of the day, as I said, there's never an excuse. Do you, no. you know, we, we can come to no. the end and say, ah, right, that's the reason. But it, it, it's, no. it's never an excuse to harm another another. It's person. never an excuse. No. So how, how did, when you said that, you know, Charles Graeber went into, you know, in prison and, and met with him several times, you said you did too. Well, I've got two questions. Why did you go and visit him uh, knowing he's a killer? And two, did you feel betrayed by him? Did you want to, because he was your great friend and then you felt betrayed by him, which I'm sure you did, did you go in there hoping to find something different or someone different or I don't know what what were the feelings like going into prison and why I went to see him because uh Charles Graber 
um, and I were working with 60 Minutes yeah. and we were going to be doing an interview with him. And so it was really getting to that stage of being able to do those interviews. And Charles Graber, who wrote the book, The Good Nurse, wanted me to go and see him. And up until that point, I had not. I had not written to him. I had not thought about talking to him. I never watched anything about the trial, nothing. And I was a confidential informant. No one knew who I was. I wanted as far away from it as I could possibly mm -hmm. get. So when he brought it up, uh, thinking about actually seeing him again, it was, I wasn't concerned about the feelings of betrayal that he had I, or that I felt toward him. I was concerned that he would feel that betrayal from me. Mm. because like I said, I did not know the murderer. Mm. I only knew my friend Charlie and I put my friend Charlie in prison. Mm. I know. And I know intellectually he had murdered people. I understood that he needed to be held accountable, but I was his friend and I was his friend in a way that when you trauma bond, when you work together in that way, you it it's very much the same way that uh policemen bond or soldiers mm. bond or you you bond in ways that you can't describe yeah. and you always want to have their back and the fact was i lied to him i i mm. i lied because i was working undercover and all of a sudden he was going to know that and i didn't want him to know there was a piece of me that still wanted to have my friend charlie he didn't exist. My friend Charlie didn't exist. My friend Charlie was someone that it was a role that he played. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to believe that he was a mercy killer so that I could give up the guilt that I had for not seeing it soon, yeah. sooner. So seeing him in prison was more that I was curious. I wanted to ask him questions. I wanted to ask him why. Mm -hmm. And also I wanted to find out, did I hurt patients? He used to inject medications into our IV bags, and then we would take those IV bags into patients' rooms and unknowingly poison them from mm -hmm. the concoctions that he had in those IVs. So I wanted to know if he had murdered people and somehow I was accidentally involved. I didn't get any of those answers. I didn't get a why, a question to the why. I didn't get a, an answer to anything that I asked him, really. Um, the only thing that I did understand very early on is that the performative part of him, of being my friend, was something that we both used to have that friendship and to have that mm -hmm. surface level friendship. And he needed it as much as I did. Yeah. Did you feel afterwards, did you feel shame? Like, and this is just a perfectly human emotion. Did you feel oh, yeah. like embarrassed or shame or shame yeah. ashamed that somebody had tricked you or had had had, had somehow caused you to participate, you, you know, or, or to be part of that show? Like, did you I felt more, more than anything, I felt a lot of shame for still caring about him. Mm. 
And I felt not embarrassment for not knowing sooner. I had a lot of self-loathing for Mm -hmm. feeling like I had participated even unknowingly. I felt very, I was very upset with myself and I had a lot of mental health issues afterwards because it wasn't just shame. It was much deeper than that. I was, Mm -hmm. I really, I blamed myself for so much of it, even, and intellectually, of course, I knew that it wasn't my fault, Mm -hmm. but I didn't see it. He was murdering people right in front of me and I didn't see it. And that goes beyond any type of embarrassment that goes Mm -hmm. straight into why, why, why didn't I see it? And looking for answers to that led me on a beautiful path. Mm-hmm. And although that that part of me that had that self-loathing, that drew me to finding other answers of why? Why me? Why did I end up befriending a serial killer? And why was it me that was able to put him away? Mm-hmm. And I loved finding those answers and Mm. I did, I was able to find those answers Mm. and I was able to put that behind me and change my life. So even the worst thing that ever happened to me became one of the most beautiful journeys I've ever had in my life. Mm. They, they say that happens often. And I, again, though, I wonder if it's, about what we we're talking about before, you know, it, it's just some of us are built to go, well, I've had adversity and now let me turn that into something beautiful, whereas others take the adversity and completely smash themselves and, you know, become drug, drug addicts and alcoholics and, you, you know, and, right, and right. so potentially like this even it even becomes more fascinating is you've hit on it again you know is is who who am I who am I what is that strength in me what is that thing in me that keeps me you know on that more optimistic path but but, I was just talking to my partner yesterday we're driving home from a holiday and I said do you know I'm really thinking a lot about how mental health impacts physical health and how physical health impacts mental health you know and 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 they're not they're not disconnected and and there's still so much shame around mental health you know when we talk about that yes. we talk cuz i saw a post on linkedin from, from a doctor that takes um depression medication or mental health medication and he, he said and he said you know we talk about the physical health and we're all fine with that and we all have empathy for people with a physical health with a physical ailment you know and we're okay but as soon as we talk about mental health it, it was oh no I don't want to talk about that and you know maybe it's invisible but there are still some um medical you know physical conditions that are invisible like we can't go down there but as I was saying, my partner, we talk about physical health and we're okay with that. We talk about gut health and we're okay with that. You know, oh, you know, gut health is so important to our brain. I said, why don't we call it mental health? Why don't we call it brain health? Because it is part of our part of us. And if we all have good brain health, you know, because there's such negative connotations attached to the mental side of it, you know. But anyway, irrelevant to all that is I'm curious, you had your heart issue 
when all this was happening. And as you said, Charlie saved your life. You know, you collapsed and he sort of, he got you back on track and he was the only one that knew about it. Um, you had to keep working because you had to pay your um, uh, uh, ins- health insurance. insurance. So when all this happened, so you're talking now about, you know, I, it was so bad for my mental health when this happened and and me talking about that, how they overlap and they feed each other. What happened to your heart when, like, when all this, because the way I say it, if I was in this all this and I had a heart condition, I reckon I'd probably freaking die. I reckon my heart would just say, fuck this shit, I'm at it. I can't do this. It's way too hard. So ha- what happened with your heart when you went through all that? I was so determined to be with my daughters that I was willing to literally do anything to save my life because I did understand what would happen or what could happen emotionally to my daughters if they Mm. lost me at such a young age. Mm. And it was really more about their mental health that Mm. helped me to get better and not just physically, which I did get physically better, emotionally I knew I had to get my shit together because they were counting on me and did I have a broken heart I wonder did I Mm. you know did I have a broken heart and I you know I don't know and I do think that energetically that's probably what it was is Mm. that I you know I I went through years of not wanting to live and It wasn't that I went, you know, to that dark place of I want to do something to end my life. Mm. It was more, I don't want to wake up. Yes, it was too hard. I don't want to wake up. I would be fine with just going to sleep and not waking up ever again. But I never would have harmed myself, especially for my children. I would Mm. never do that to them. So fighting for my life, fighting for my mental health was really about someone else. Once again, Mm. that's how it all started. I couldn't do it for myself. Mm. I had to do it for someone else. And I don't know. I think energetically we can talk about things like I didn't even want to talk about that I had physical issues, talking about emotional issues I, I would never have told anyone. And, and Mm. I think also that stigma is very, it's, it's a curiosity to me, but people tend to not trust you as much Mm. when they know that you're struggling emotionally or mentally. Um, Mm. They're afraid to lay too much on you. So they tend Mm. to hold things back. Um, they're also afraid that you may respond in a way that they would be uncomfortable with. Mm. So once again, they keep things from you. Um, and so it becomes extremely isolating, very, very isolating. And Mm. yeah, I think that it's a trust issue. I think that if we only show strength, then we're, we're not going to be abandoned. Mm. Yeah. So did, did you get your heart? Did you get something done to it? Like, was there an action, like a pro- procedure or something done to, to get it? Because you, you don't have your heart issue now. So what? Oh, I do. Oh, I'm, you do? I'm actually, I'm actually wearing it. Oh. 
a, a special heart monitor right now. So oh. I still have a heart issue still. Oh. Um, but I, um, yes, I ended up having an experimental procedure that was supposed to only last about five to 10 years to keep me off of the transplant list. And mm. it has lasted, you know, this, this year it will be 19 years that it has kept me off the transplant list. But mm. we always knew that there was going to have to be something, you know, to follow that up. Mm. And I'm in that phase right now where I've had 19 years, I've had, you know, so much time that that physician, that wonderful, amazing, brilliant cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic gave me so many years with my daughters, that now they're grown, they're taking care of themselves. And it's easier for me now. It's easier mm. for me to say, okay, if something happens now, I know that they can take care of themselves. And yeah. I know that we've had enough conversations now that they know how much I love them. They, they are very established emotionally. So mm. of course it would hurt them if yeah. I wasn't here, but it would be, it would have been a lot different if they had yeah. been only six and 11 yeah. If something had happened to me back when I was diagnosed. So yes, yeah. I had an experimental procedure, which lasted me all these years. Wow. Well, one, that's impressive. Um, but <laughs> I still don't know how you got through that, through that without it knocking you over. But I think, you know, they, I think also you're talking about, you know, having meaning and purpose and the purpose being your daughter, your daughters, you know, and I really think that is such a strong driver of whether we survive things or not, you know, or whether we, whether we get up the next day. And I, I really reckon the way we think our attitude drives our physical health as well, Do you, you know, and, and if we're saying, well, life's not worth it, there's nothing here, it's likely that we're going to not have a good outcome. But any, anyway, so now I'm, I'm re really interested in this. It, you said before, um, I'm just thinking, do, do I have any more questions about Charlie's not going to bother you. I think that this, you said he's got 17 um, life sentences. I think it's more that, that I that I read. But anyway, it's irrelevant. He's got that many consecutive life sentences that he will spend the rest of his life in jail. Does that give you at least breathing space? Does that, does that give you the fact that, you know what, I can talk about it, I can breathe, I'm never in danger, my kids are never going to be in danger? Like, do you think that gives you um, that kind of relief? Um, interestingly enough, I never really had much fear in that area. I think also because I knew that he... I I don't I don't know why I didn't have fear in that area. Uh, it was more that I wanted to make sure that I did not mess up the investigation. Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't really allowed to talk about it. I, you know, I I worked undercover, so no one knew my name. I think it was more when Charles Graber was writing the book and I was given the okay to talk to him about my story that I was just really concerned that somehow I would say something that would get him out of jail. Mm. Not, oh. not that I was, I was worried about myself. I mm. was worried about that investigation. I was worried about it for the victims themselves and their families. So no, I, that's the only reason that I was concerned. Mm. 
Wow. Uh, one last thing on Charlie, because I want to talk about your healing journey, is um, I saw in that, what was it called? Um, think uh, Catching a Killer Nurse in that documentary. I saw and I don't Capturing know. the Killer Nurse. Cap, yeah. Have you watched that? I mean, yes, you have now. Okay. In that, so, the, oh, go. No, go. On. Yeah. So I have watched it twice only because I had to give approvals for a few things. And I did watch it twice, and I feel it's more chilling than the movie. Yeah, me too. Yep. And because you actually see him, you see his reactions, and the bit I was going to mention was in the courtroom, and families of the victims were standing there in front of him saying, you took away you took away my whatever brother or whatever, yes. and you have no... You, you you do you know the pain that's caused and he just sat there completely blank and I, I was in tears I was watching it think oh my god how do these people how do these people face him like that and and talk about their loved ones and particularly the healthy loved ones like you said the ones that were ready to be released and suddenly not making it and I I, I don't know I that's to me when I was watching the movie, I kind of saw him as a real troubled, isolated, um, a lot of pain from his losing his mother. Um, yeah. yeah potentially, you know, an autistic sort of, you know, probably on the spectrum, that kind of stuff. And I, I felt a little bit of uh, empathy, even though completely no um, acceptance of what he was doing. But uh, when I watched the documentary I switched and I went far out you you just you're hearing that hundreds of people have died that you know you know this anyway you're not nothing absolutely nothing and it's mm. well I think who you saw was the person I didn't know and that was the murderer so who you saw was a very smug narcissist who does not have any any concept of someone else's lives or how it affects them Mm. he has no empathy he can feign empathy he can pretend friendship he can want to make people believe that he cares about them but when it comes right down to it, who he really is was that cold-blooded murderer, and he mm. was pretending to be those other people. It's funny you should say that. I was just away on the weekend, and the book I was reading was dealing with narcissists, liars, manipulators, and bullies or something like that. And as you're saying stuff, I'm thinking, oh, my God, that was exactly what I was reading, you know, about particular narcissistic yeah. types and so tell me about this healing journey. So when so this was 20 years ago and and we we can't just say ah oh, 20 years ago it's in the past it's forgotten because when something is so traumatic like that it never leaves you. Like this just sits under the surface you, you know and you've got to find ways to heal otherwise you would be um obsessed with it. You know it would just it would just override every mental thought that you every thought you're having. When you um said you you went through this journey of questioning, questioning why, and now 20 years on, you're doing some great stuff, which I want to talk about next. But 
how long did it take you to, like, how long were you sitting in this questioning, self-loathing, I have to find an answer but I can't yet? How long did you sit in that phase for? I um, I sat in until I was physically healthy enough to really go on that spiritual quest because up until that point, I had one goal and that was to stay alive. Mm. And then once I realized, okay, I'm not dying. Now we have to think about my brain and my emotional health here. <laughs> mm. Let's go. And so I started very traditional talk therapies. I started very traditional um, types of um, cognitive therapies to help me. I started medications and I realized that it was just lacking and I wasn't getting to the heart of what was really happening with me. So I started studying hypnotherapy. I started studying um, meditation um, and that led me down these paths to all of these different modalities, to mm. um, modalities like uh, quantum healing and reconnective healing and Reiki and mm. even more mystical shamanic type of healing strategies and going there in the darkness and doing shadow work and working with Byron Katie and the work. It was like every single piece that I would pick up, it was a key to the mm. next healing phase. Mm. And it just opened me and opened me and opened me until we come to a couple of years ago and I, I found out they're making a movie. And through that, I knew that I would end up with some kind of a platform, whatever it is, that mm. 15 minutes, it's not 15 minutes of fame anymore, it's 15 mm. seconds. Yeah. And I wanted to be very intentional about what I used that for, because mm. I wanted to make sure that the families and that the, the aftermath of having all of those victims, I wanted them to know that what I was using that platform for was good. Yeah. And so much of my healing journey included retreats, which is how I met your friend Liesl. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when I went on these retreats, this re recently, in fact, I was in Cairns. I don't say it correctly. I know I say it American. Cairns. Cairns. Oh, Cairns. Yeah. Oh, they were saying Cairns. my name. Cairns. Yeah. Cairns. Cairns. And so while I was there at a retreat, I went, I was speaking there. And I decided to go through one of their practices that they were teaching. And it just moved me so much that I realized I needed to do these for healthcare workers. Yeah. So I have partnered with the retreat specialists of Australia, uh, Lisa Albrecht. Yeah. And we are now developing these amazing conferences for healthcare workers to sample and to feel cared for yeah. um, and to deal with their own cumulative trauma from what they have sustained through all kinds of institutional abuses. Mm. And really to once again help them to feel strong so that they can feel more resilient 
and they can hopefully have a better feeling about themselves as well as well as their lives. And mm-hmm. also put in a bit, a bit of fun mysticism in there and do some spiritual practices <laughs> like what I I went through with shamanic healing and tarot cards and really fun stuff that maybe people would not think about using them to help their mental health, but it does open up this trust within your own intuition. So that's what we're doing. That's what I'm using my platform for. And it's what I'm so proud of this. Yeah. And that, by the way, you didn't mention the name of it, but it's the most important person. So MIP. Most important patient. Most important important patient. patient. That's right. Is it it MIP retreats? Is that what it's called? Yes. So you are your most important patient when you're a healthcare worker. The last person you are are usually caring for is yourself. So it is MIP, most important patient conferences and retreats. I think that is incredibly important and nurses tend to be, a lot of healthcare workers tend to be um, self-sacrificial. I I will just put everybody else first and and like you were in the movie, you you know, it's just like I know I've got a heart problem but but I've got patients to care for, you you know, and and I think that nurses in particular, uh, they do, like you said about the abuse, and I think that not many people realise this, that that, even that time I was just explaining being there, the the abuse, you know, is... um, is incredible, and I, and I re- recognize that comes from a place of fear. But that is vicarious trauma. You know, you you take that and take that and take that, and after years, I know you can say, well, that's just part of the job, but that has to be on a cellular level. You know, has to be sort of adding up and adding up and adding up and adding up. And I, I think it would be easy for a nurse to say or a healthcare professional to say, I don't need to look after me like I'm fine but I think when you're talking about even the fun little practices do you, you know I think even even just cracking them open a tiny bit then they start to notice shit exactly I didn't, I yep, didn't yep. see that I didn't yes yeah yeah exactly I think that's bloody fantastic that you're doing that I have a question you've 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 um written in oh no let me say the things that you do anyway and, and all of these things are part of everything that you do so reiki master hypnotherapist nlp practitioner meditation instructor dream sculptor practitioner reconnective healer integrative energy healer past life regressionist crystal language reader medical intuitive you've also talked about tarot cards and all that kind of stuff um one of them i'm interested in a dream sculptor practitioner what what is that? I'm so curious. So it's a type of neurolinguistic programming where you take each aspect of your life and focus on each pillar of that type uh, part of your life so that you aren't just going for one piece of your life. Let's say, you know, you wanted to talk about fitness and you can't get past your fear of the gym. And so you go through their past and figure out what those um, what those triggers are. And Mm. we fix that part of their life. We fix, you know, that now they want to go to the gym, but now they're 
becoming impulsive and spending too much money. So it is dream sculpting is more about taking each one of those pillars of your life and dealing with each one of those pillars. Because if you go out of balance, you start to fix one part of your life. Another part of your life decides that it it also needs some attention. (laughs) So when you do all of them together, you can balance that out. Yeah. I love that. And I love that. We should just say that fixing, none of us are broken. None of us are broken. We I have love little, that. You're right. Yes. We yes. have broken think, little bits. But I agree. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I, you weren't saying we were. I'm just I'm just saying it. That, that, yeah, it that, no, that is very true. And it, in fact, it's one of the things that I always say. And I think I think that is also a misconception that we can fix certain things. And I, you know, it's still even a habit of mine to say that word, but you are right. We are not broken. And we think that when we're talking about actually, I, I don't even like the word healing because even when you feel like you're healing something again, it's that sense that you're broken Mm -hmm. and it's actually that, trauma sometimes if we look at it that trauma that leads us onto the path that is beautiful Mm. and I I look at every part of my life as it led me to something beautiful Mm. people have different types of trauma and people can deal with their trauma in whatever way they want Mm. and if it is that dealing with their trauma means that they need to do something to help their own anxiety then you meet them where they are and it doesn't mean that they have to be fixed it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them it just means that's where they are in their journey and that that is a beautiful place as well Mm. And I think if you look at it visually, like if you try to imagine it, you know, on a deeper level about a, a person and you're talking about these pillars in one area, I mean, we've all got stuff in all areas, but it, it, I kind of imagine it like it's it's stuck. Do you know, so it's, it's just like just one part there is just stuck and it's stuck in a trauma from the past, you know, and it, yeah, and it yeah, yeah. doesn't doesn't mean broken. It just stuck and it just needs a little bit of help prying it. So if it was like this, just needs a little bit of help prying yep. it open. Opening, and let's, opening, let's go opening. again. Yeah. And, yes. and we, 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 we get ashamed or, or oh, I was going to say embarrassed again. I don't know why I'm stuck on those two words but today, but it, it's kind of like, whenever something is stuck or like that we do think we're not good enough and and you know and I'm not I'm not okay and but every single and we also think about trauma as a big freaking motherfucker <laughs> well I was in a yeah. I had my leg cut off or someone shot me or something like that but in actual fact every time our body experiences some kind of jolt that's a trauma, you know, it may only be a little one or, or we have an emotional jolt, you know, somebody so out of the blue told me they cheated on me. So that's a trauma, you know, and we. we it is traumatic. It is. because, And you have a physical response to that. Yes. And, and we hold it and we hold it. And it's kind of like, well, it's too hard. You know, I just, I just suppress that. And if, if we could just see that we've all got little traumas and some have big traumas and it doesn't matter the size that we've all got a past. And some people say, move on from the past. Don't look back. 
But I, I kind of think sometimes we do have to move, go back and say, well, what is that thing? I had a money blockage, a real huge money issue, and I, I did some some therapy on it with um, a lady from, uh, I can't remember the state she's in. Anyway, Lisa, top of America, can't think of the state. but um, And it was came back to some um, uh, epi, epige, epigenetics with my mother, who lost her little sister when she was 19. You know, my mum was 19 mm-hmm. when she lost her younger sister and she felt worthless. And she carried that into me through the womb, you know, through my birth. And I've carried that all my life. And and I was I was I was embarrassed about that. I was ashamed of it. I was like, what's yeah. wrong with me? Yeah. Why can't yes. I have a yes. money problem? And yes. And money is very associated with shame. Very yeah. much so. And now it's healed. I don't have the problem, but that's but great. It, it takes a lot of guts, though. Like it really takes guts, and we we've got this. Like you I was talking know, about Karen, about- though. Yeah, and not to not to interrupt you, oh. but I interrupted you. So <laughs> the the other thing is, we don't have to heal if we don't want to. There's there's the other part of it is that we don't have to move forward on our journey. We don't have to do any of those things. If you are in a place where you are functioning, you are doing things in your life that are okay, you don't have to change. You don't have to change everything in your life. You don't have to be thinking about those things. And I think that even when you're not on that continuous quest, like I was, you can still be growing and not even doing it consciously. Like even people that are listening to this, it could just be a curiosity that they have that kind of started to stir within them and it doesn't mean they have to change there's nothing wrong with them it just means maybe you're curious yeah and and I also think though that a lot of that change comes from external comparisons do you know it's kind of like a we we feel like there's an expectation from somebody else that I'm not as good as them and therefore I have to yes yes absolutely absolutely yeah, and I don't agree with that. I think it's it's got it has to be about our internal happiness. You know, if we've got a stirring, if we've got an internal quest, follow that. If we don't, that's freaking fine too. But we should not be doing it to measure up to somebody else. Yes, yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, actually, measure uh, two parts of that. I always say two parts of that. Measure up to someone else's expectations, but not only that. Our, per- our perceived thoughts that they have those expectations because half the time they don't have those expectations. It's us judging ourselves, you know, that they must be looking at me like I'm shit. <laughs> but yes, but- and, you know, isn't that true? I like I'm always I'm I'm always so conscious of the people in my head. Because yeah. it's the nebulous they. Well, who yeah. is they? They will think these things. Who's they? Yeah. I mean, it's like we make up these people. <laughs> There's a great saying too. You wouldn't worry so much about what people said. What? No, no. Start again. You wouldn't worry so much about what people thought about you if you realized how little they actually did. Do so. We spend all this time worrying about other people, but they're not even bloody thinking about us. They're too busy worrying about dinner. <laughs> 
I know. <laughs> oh, I love it. So um, you also said this. I'm going to quote you out of your bio here. I now have created a life filled with abundance, exotic travels, and beautiful relationships. My amazingly full and adventurous life was created through a deep understanding of this matrix we live in. Um, I love the word matrix there, and I, I recognise how many connections there are energetically throughout the world. How would you explain that in a way that, you know, it, it would just make sense to people? So it is very much that we have a connection to every single person we have an interaction with. Mm. And you can think about it almost as, um, let's, let's just say a spider web. Because yeah. we are constantly weaving this beautiful web, this mm -hmm. intricate, gorgeous web. And one tiny little movement on one part of that thread can spread across. And mm -hmm. it is, to me, it is the weaving of our lives. And then those webs start to come together. Our web my web now is intertwined with your web yeah. and it's everywhere. And I apologize for any of the arachnophobes in, in the, <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that the intricacies of how we are connected. Mm -hmm. And yeah. as I'm talking to you, the people that are listening to this, I'm now connected to all of them yeah. and they are connected to me. Yeah. And everything that we do is so interconnected. And when I talk about the matrix as well, it is very much about seeing this world as, and we can go as deep as you like, but it is very much about perception and being this hologram and being in this holographic universe yeah. that we get to be this beautiful avatar, this wonderful avatar, this body that we are in, like being in a video game. Yeah. And we get to choose. We really get to choose what we want to do. We think that we don't have choices, especially yeah. when things are going very bad. Yeah. We think that those things have been inflicted on us when in reality, those things are the things that we then get an opportunity to see where that connection goes. Yeah. So that is my matrix. Well, I love that matrix. I absolutely love it. And it's so true you say about choice. And I hear so many people say, I don't have a choice. And I always say, you're never stuck. You're never stuck. There is always a next step. And and sometimes it's hard. And sometimes that next step is something that we think, oh, I don't know if I can do. I have this analogy, and I love your spider web analogy. It reminds me of that saying, "Oh, what a wicked web we weave when at first we practice to deceive." Then <laughs> you know, it's like, "Don't bloody." Or it's like, or it's like Charlotte's Web. Yes, Charlotte's Web. Yes, that is. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I, I love it. It's such a good, I was just about to say another analogy and now I forgot. doesn't matter. I was about um, the matrix. No, I can't remember. Our choice. And it's, it's. I, I think that if we, it, we're, if you were talking about it like being an avatar, an avatar or anything. I, I often say life's a game and I don't mean it's a game as in um, uh, we play with each other, do you know, that we, that we, we've we got the right to just be, you know, shooting each other down or whatever, like some avatar games. But 
it really right. is a, a game of life that we can control, Do you, you know, and sure, you're going to get physically ill, you're going to get all these things, you know, car accidents and stuff are going to happen. But our choice is that we are the creator of our life. Do you know, we are the creator of the outcomes. And it's all about the choices that we make if, if and I, I get it that that's not a friggin' easy thing to do, but we're not victims and we're not held unless we're physically held uh, hostage by somebody. Do you, you know, you know, our minds are incredible machines that send us down a negative part when our negative bias just tells us everything's bloody wrong, but we've actually got the capacity. You know, this you're smiling because you know, this we've, we've got the capacity, you know, to um, make the decisions that are positive. We've got the capacity to, not be a victim and it's just because our whole lives you know the minute we were walking we got smacked on the hands don't touch that don't touch that sit down shush be quiet get back in your seat you know our whole lives through education we have has been told us that we can't we have to obey the rules and they're someone else's rules whether they suit us or not and we have to compete and we're not good enough unless we reach levels and obviously we take that into adulthood and we're already fucked by the time we're adults too. We're completely messed <laughs> up. Like, and But we forget. We forget that, hang on a minute, this is somebody else's man-made rule. Do you, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we, we have a complete um, hell of lost the word, uh, anarchy, do you know, where we all don't follow any rules. It's not what I'm saying. But for ourselves, we're our own, we're our own managers. We really are. But we are. You know that. Now, um, I, have you found peace? Oh, yes. Oh, That's yes. a big <laughs> Absolutely have found peace. And the peace that I have found does not look like peace every day. What it looks like is that I have tools and treasures now that can lead me back to peace quicker. Yeah. So I know where it is. I know where it lives and I have access to it. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's like that every day. No. Well, it can't be because there are external factors going on. Yeah. The, and that would be awfully boring. I don't, would be. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a monk sitting in a cave. I want the experiences that are emotional and, that that still expand me and I you know today I learned something about it's something that I had said and I know what I meant and it wasn't taken that way and I you know I just I I felt so sad and perplexed and I thought how beautiful is this that mm -hmm. I feel sad and perplexed yeah it gives me an opportunity to grow and then move back to peace again I so agree. And by the way, young yogis and monks sitting in caves, uh, they still get birds nesting in their hair. That can't be pleasant. <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't think that we evolve into Buddhist no. monks. You know what I think? I think that that's how we all start out in this, in this game. We start out as the Buddhist and monks because yep. what I would like to see is them living this life of dealing with a serial killer yep. and then finding peace. Yeah. Let's do that. 
let's yeah. have a toddler screaming in your ear and let's see if you can find peace. <laughs> because to me, that's level 30. But yeah. sitting in the seat and not having to worry about anything and mm. people giving you food, that's not a place I want to be. No, I agree. And I, I, I always say about I want to feel the feels. Do you, you know, I, yes. I, people say I'm a really passionate person and I get really angry about stuff. Yes. And fucking dude, you know, if something's in just I crack the shits big time. And I always say I want to feel that. I want to feel yes. every Go emotion. there. Yeah, Go there. <laughs> Even if it's terrible, I want to feel it because on the oh. other end of it, I feel the joy. Do you know, I feel the, the utter excitement of joy. Yeah. And I would hate to miss either. And, you know, right. because yeah. it's it's like someone explained it to me once. It's like, a, um, and I don't remember, maybe been John D. Martini. I can't remember. Anyway, but it was like a, a um, if you only have this much on the positive or this much on the negative, you'll only have this much on the positive. If you have this much on the negative, you'll have this. So it's it's like a, 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 a quantum physics. You talked about that before. You know, there has to be an equal amount on either side. And if we try to keep it so that we're not feeling any pain, we never feel joy either. Do you know, so that the, the more pain we feel and the more, I'm going to say negative, but I don't see it as negative. I think it's just a, with that's just what we call it. The more I'm over to the right, the more I'm going to go over to the left and the more I'm going to swing around. And, and I know some people can't handle that, but I want to feel it because when I bloody skid into my grave, I want to say I bloody lived. I lived every inch of life, you know, and by Christ it hurt, but I, I still want to feel it. <laughs> and that's where you grow. Same. And I love, I love you saying about, I, I know the same because I hear you saying you, the peace. I love that bit about peace. Life of peace isn't about going around and everything's just bloody, ho, you know, not lovely because that's ho-hum. But to find peace and like you said, it's the quicker you come back to it, the quicker you can grow and yeah. then go, you know what? Yes. I don't want to. I don't want to sit in that space because it's actually yeah. affecting me. I'm and maybe you don't want. Yeah, you don't want to sit in that space, but more so, you have acquired the tools yeah. to reestablish yourself in the yeah. in a sense of peace. Yes, and I might just re, I might just refine what I meant about that, just so that we, when I say don't want to, I mean don't stay there. Do you know, like yeah. like sit in that space long enough to grow, but but yeah. you know when it's too long because then you start harming yourself. You know, with your yeah. self abuse, and you start harming others with your with your. You, you know what I mean, you're abusive, you know, you start to be shitty with everybody and blaming everybody. That's when you're there too long. That's just too Agreed. long. Sit enough to feel. I love talking to you. <laughs> you're magnificent. <Same>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just awesome. I better, I better let you go and have dinner soon, but um, I just want to, uh, for people to be able to reach out to you, you know, because you do this, um, do you do, online healing i'm just making that up and assuming you do so i do i will take i will take one-on-ones uh but for the most part i like to do them in person yeah. i am happy to do them online i just don't take a lot of those clients yeah um but i will yes absolutely so you're based and in so florida Yes, I'm based in Florida. So you can look me up under Amy the Good Nurse 
and on Instagram. And that's really, I'm very active on Instagram. That's probably the best place to follow my journey. You can also look on amythegoodnurse.com. Good. And why are you, you went straight to where people can find you, and that is fantastic because I hope people do. But what I was going to say about Florida is if you were in Florida, um, because I know I do have some listeners in Florida, uh, you could just go and work out to see Amy in person. Oh, yeah. Or anyone else in the states who can um, get to get to you and wants to get to you um, for good reasons, of course. Um, we're only doing nice and healing, so bugger off anybody else. Uh, and a lot of my <laughs> listeners are in Australia, so clearly uh, a flight to Florida is probably not 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 on their cards. No, but, but you can um, come to the conferences, and, that, and that's mostimportantpatient.com. Actually, yes, we didn't go there. Mostimportantpatient.com. Uh, I'm going to say it again because I did say it wrong. Mostimportantpatient.com. If you are a nurse or a healthcare worker, um, please go check that out because um, you may think that you're doing okay, but any little traumas will be niggling at you. Please go to one of Amy's retreats. Where is the next one coming up? And they're all over the world, so just go. Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia is a very spiritual community. And where we are having this is in the Marriott in the Plant City District. And there are so many crystals. There's, uh, I think there's $2 million worth of crystals in this place. And the crystals are, some of them are taller than my house. Wow, wow. So, yeah, I mean, the energy there is off the charts. Wow. So go to these, you know, I do I do this sort of stuff. I travel around the world to go to stuff. It is well worth it. So um, pack up your bags, go over to uh, Georgia and go and do this. And when you talk about crystals, some people don't believe in crystals. Well, if you don't, you need to get a little bit more in touch with them because they buzz like crazy once you yes, allow yourself to um, be open to the fact that we are all connected and that means we're all connected not just to each other but to everything in on the planet. And if you hold a crystal in your hand and you open up to the possibility that it's vibrating just like you are, you will feel it and it is absolutely magnificent. So please, please follow Amy at mostimportantpatient.com and amythegoodness.com and um either just follow or go to one of the retreats or ju- or connect, reach out for a, an online um, healing session because, Amy, you can feel your goodness through the um, – yeah, and none of us are perfect, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you're a saint because none of us are, but you can feel your compassion, your empathy, your warmth. You can feel that. I can feel that through the screen. So um, Thank if- you. Anyone coming to you is only going to get pure love. So I'm, I, I want them. I want people to come to you and feel that, feel it double one on one. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. That's <laughs> my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank you for still having the um the guts to talk about the past and you know and to because I think that helps other people listen to it and one be a bit more aware, but two realize that they can move. Past traumas and um the platform that you've created is nothing but 
sensationally good and something that's really vibrationally needed in the world. So I really, really thank you from the bottom of my heart for creating that platform. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for having me. Oh, I, I was not going to let you get away. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And we will stay in touch and I really look forward to it. Yes, we will. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> See ya. Bye, Karen. Ta-da. Oh, guys. And usually I just say, oh, guys, I'm going to say, oh, my God. Guys, that was a sensational interview. I promised that was coming. Um, we finally got to do it. Please, please, please go follow Amy the Good Nurse dot com well that's her website um instagram is at amy the good nurse i hope you love that story and i don't mean love as in i mean it's a pretty bloody awful beginning of the story and i can't imagine what it would be like to trust somebody so much and then to find out that they've killed so many people i thought it was up to 400 people and now i'm hearing amy say between 400 and a thousand people that he killed in hospitals so fingers crossed that that's that's not a common thing but I still think that the the possibility of these things happening is is real and thank god uh Amy did well that she was presented with the evidence and then actually wired herself up and had him caught against all well I guess there was so much uh damage it could have done to her if she had got been caught out but also uh, with her heart issues going through that stress could have killed her but she stepped up to do the right thing so I, I hope you enjoyed that and or got a lot out of it um please go and uh, connect with Amy and if you want some one-on-one -on -one healing it'd be great if you're in America because you can get it one-on-one -on -one. I wish I was there and get it one-on-one -on -one. but even if you're in Australia or elsewhere uh, she does take a small number of online healing um, appointments so please go and do that I absolutely love that um hope you guys did too if you're not into crystals go get some yes if you are a nurse or a healthcare professional please consider please consider going to one of her retreats where you are the focus and you get to give some love back to yourself which is such a critical thing and that is most important patient.com all right i'm going to leave it there and thank you very much for joining me again and i'll see you next week see ya Thanks for joining me. I hope this episode inspired you to take action. If you'd like to reach out, then I'd love to hear from you. Info at getoffthebench.com.au and check out my website, kerenvaughan.com. Otherwise, keep believing in yourself, celebrate the tiny wins and keep moving in the right direction.